This is Intersection. I'm Talia Blake filling in for Matthew Petty. The Equality Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, and more. LGBTQ veterans in Florida are pushing for Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott to sign it. Randy Robertson is a retired transgender United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and command pilot living on the Space Coast. She joins me to talk Randy about Robertson, her efforts all, to get it passed. Thank you so much for joining me today. Ten years after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, veterans across Florida are pushing for state senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott to endorse the Equality Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. Now, this bill has already passed the U.S. House of Representatives and is now set for a Senate vote. Similar legislation has been introduced in Florida in previous years, but continues to fail. What's stopping this from passing here? Well, uh... Big question. So, you know, fascinating 10 years. It's hard to believe that it's been basically 10 years since the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I was at the Pentagon. I was assigned to the Pentagon as we were in the process of getting ready to deal with the repeal in late 2010, just as I was on the cusp of my retirement. And so it was it was really interesting because for me as a transgender person, it was I was torn. Right, because don't the repeal of don't ask, don't tell was going to have absolutely, really no direct impact on my or other transgender people's ability to serve, but it was a it was a good harbinger of what may come, and wow, how and why we've ended up with the stagnation, I guess, of progress, and particularly here in Florida. Well, you know, it's really ultimately all about politics. Let's let's be honest. And uh, so myself and, and I, certainly a significant group of other veterans are pushing, uh, continue to push for broad national protections for the LGBTQ community. Um, it's right. I spent 22 years defending the Constitution, and there are many that really, it seems, um, want to deny me equal protection uh, and other LGBTQ people across the nation. And that's that's why we're pushing. That's why I have engaged with both of our senators' offices over the past year and a half or two on the issue and continue to press them for, in essence, reasons why, why the senators oppose it. And um, their responses, honestly, are, are frustrating. What have they told you? Well, largely their opposition lies, or they state that the opposition lies in religious freedom and being concerned about religious freedom protections. But, you know, ironically, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, it's not as though, I, I know it's, it's protecting some religious organizations' abilities maybe to choose who they hire, ultimately to discriminate. And to some degree within the confines of the, what would be called the, um, the ecclesiarchy, I, I kind of get that. I mean, churches ought to be able to who they, hire who they want as a pastor. But if you have outside businesses, I think all that kind of stuff needs to stop at that door. And the broader, the broader societal constructs need to be applied. Why should a hospital be able to deny me care or 
treat me in, in, in an inferior way because I'm a transgender or an LGBTQ person or anyone for that matter based on, on who they are. Can you talk a little bit more about what efforts you've been making to get this legislation passed? I know you just said that you've been talking with senators, but what else have you been doing? Well, I've, um, I occasionally write articles, so I've been published out here on the Space Coast where I live in our, in our local paper, Florida Today. I had an opinion piece published in uh, um, the Orlando Sentinel over the course of the summer. I've written other articles uh, that have been published in various other forums that are out there. And then I, I work in uh, several or with several organizations such as SAGE which is a senior advocacy group, healthcare for healthcare and health needs for LGBTQ individuals as we age. I'm closer to that than I want to be, but, <laughs> but um, and so I work with SAGE. I work with the NGPA, which is the largest association of professional aviators um, as it relates to the LGBTQ community. And so I advocate there. Um, I've got a project that later this month, the Reformation Project, which is the, the leading um, conversation group within evangelical Christianity, promoting a much more inclusive view, uh, has their annual gathering out in Phoenix the end of this month. I'll be presenting there. I, there's a whole assortment of things like that that I do. And, and it's all of those things that kind of come together to hopefully change some hearts and minds, but advance the the cause of what I see as goodness. So I want to touch on one of those things you said, which was writing in the Orlando Sentinel and Florida Today. Um, I took a look at those op-eds and you talked about a patchwork of protections for transgender Floridians. Um, can you kind of explain what you meant by that? So if you look at, if you look at it as a national issue. The patchwork is that every state, because we don't have national federal protection, broad federal protection, the patchwork then becomes what state am I in? I'm a professional pilot. I can end up in all sorts of states. And so if I end up in a hospital, I may or may not, based on local uh, or state law, have protections for the way I'm treated, the way I'm cared for, or whether I'm even cared for at all. And that's just in the healthcare arena, but that goes to public accommodation and all of those kinds of things. And so it's that patchwork that becomes problematic. Uh, and, and that's where broad national protections need to be enacted. And unfortunately, Florida continues to lag. I mean, you know, it's it, we are so, so close still in many ways to the tragedy at Pulse. And yet our state politicians fail to connect the dots that if we don't at a public policy level put those protections there, it's actually an incentive for those who want to marginalize me and other LGBT people um, to be able to do that. Because, well, if the state doesn't protect them, why should I respect them? How do these lack of protections uniquely affect veterans? So depending on what your status is, I'm a retiree. So 
it doesn't, fortunately, it doesn't affect me other than realistically in the healthcare arena, but those protections, if you're a veteran who isn't a retiree and is, and is dependent at least partially on the VA for healthcare coverage, um, are the policies, the procedures, are, are those things in place at the VA clinic where you are located? or the closest one to you so that you're treated fairly and treated with respect and get the medical care that you need regardless of your status as an LGBT person. And for my case, transgender people probably have the biggest challenge in that arena. It's, um, but, you know, it's, it's that stuff that becomes the challenge. And if we, that's where the Equality Act would take and and it would strip away within existing federal law all of those pieces that are the nuanced pieces that live in all sorts of little chunks of law all over the place law and policy you know the propagation of of law as congress enacts a law and the president signs it and it becomes law and then most of that provides the administrative agencies with the power then to enact instructions and rules and laws in essence as an extension and if if in those things there's embedded pieces that deny lgbtq people access or protection those need to be stripped away and it becomes super easy if something like the equality act is enacted to go to an administrative agency and go this is not uh in compliance even if they're moving to seek to become compliant it will you can easily force the issue now it's you have to go through huge administrative processes and then you may get to the federal courts and even if federal courts are willing to hear it and then you may not win so speaking of administrations and politicians this past year, the DeSantis administration passed anti-LGBTQ legislation that bans transgender youth from participating in sports. There were also a few other LGBTQ-related measures that took things away. What do you think the future of LGBTQ rights looks like in Florida? There aren't enough of us. Um, so you got a couple of questions. So there's not enough LGBTQ people in the world, um, or certainly not in the voting population in the state of Florida, to drive an agenda that is going to be inclusive. So we're reliant on allies and and broader broader based movements and 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 forces within the political arena. And until some of the political tone and tenor in the state of Florida moves in a more progressive direction, honestly, I don't hold out a lot of hope. Doesn't mean we quit trying. It just means that. I, I don't see the state moving in a positive direction. So that's the question, kind of the, the answer to the kind of the bigger question you asked. The specifics of some of the specific legislation that passed this year, the banning of transgender students, that's just mean and mean-spirited. And I think it reflects on a broader tone in national politics that is brandished and has been for the past oh, five, six, seven years now. And LGBTQ people, because we're a minority and a significant minority, and Mr. DeSantis's party is reliant on a voting block that tends to not find LGBTQ people 
people that uh, are worthy of respect, um, they'll pass laws to placate that voting block. And that's, and that's largely where, particularly the anti-trans legislation, which was prolific this year um, at state legislative levels is coming from. It's, it's reinforcing that fundamental group of people that the Republicans are reliant on to stay in power. For the people who don't care about this issue or say, you know, with midterm elections coming up in 2022, you know, this isn't where our focus needs to be. What, what do you say to them? So if civil rights and the rights of all Americans isn't where we're supposed to be focused, I'm not sure where we're supposed to be focused. And so every election cycle is ultimately about how Americans are treated both in the broad but in the specific. And so midterm elections elect people. We're going to elect a senator um, that will, in all probability, be in the Senate for six years. So is that important? It's extremely important. You just can't go, well, it's a midterm election. It doesn't really matter. Every election matters and every election should matter to every, every American. And uh, so this midterm is no different than any other. Get out and, and vote. And I would say get out and vote for those who are gonna be for civil rights and equal treatment for everyone. And Randy, can you tell me why is the Equality Act important to you? Well, for me, the Equality Act means that I get to be treated no matter where I go in this country, um, no matter where my flight that I'm flying takes me and where I put my head on a pillow in a hotel for some night, that I have under at least the, the federal law, I have equal protection. And it's not just me, it's all of the LGBTQ people. And that flows into the broader spectrum of, I mean, the Equality Act doesn't just include LGBTQ plus people, it affects, broadens the protections for women and other minorities that the Civil Rights Act started on in a very great way that needs to be expanded more broadly, and the Equality Act does that. And I know there are, are some significant religious communities that are concerned about it, but you know what? They were all concerned about the Civil Rights Act and, and how that would impact them in negative ways because African-American people were going to have to be included in the broader part of society. And I know we're still struggling with that. And that's part of this broad conversation that we're struggling with as a nation. And that's why we need to push forward with it. Randy, as a veteran, how does it make you feel that you served your country to allow for freedoms and protections, and now you're trying to live in your truth, but your country is not necessarily protecting you? <laughs> it's, an it's an irony, right? Um, I, I live in a very fortunate slice of certainly the transgender community. Um, and that being the case, I mean, I, I have a supportive family. I have a wonderful spouse that I've been with for 37 years and we have two great kids. And, and, and so I live in this really rarefied world and I have a great job and I have a great career and all of those things, but I'm, I'm the exception. And if I don't, live out what I 
The reason I joined the Air Force was to support and defend the Constitution. And when I took my oath of office, the many times that it did over the course of my career, as I progressed, I raised my right hand to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, not just for me, but for everybody, for every American, and even people who aren't citizens, right? For everybody. And, and with that as a backdrop, I can't just walk away and go, hey, I'm lucky and, and presume that I'm going to be okay. I am okay at this point. And I passed through the world and I'm doing fine. But I can't say that for the rest of the LGBTQ community and, and the rest of the broader set of minority communities and marginalized communities. And for that, that's a continuing that mission that, um, of to protect and defend the Constitution and extend its rights to everyone. And lastly, what happens if the Equality Act doesn't get signed this uh, go around when it goes to Senate? Wow, you know, um, the midterms will di dictate the future of, of whether there's even much hope over the next handful of years. If the Democratic Party can manage to maintain or gain slightly in the Senate, and that may be an optimistic view, but if they could, I think that might be able to turn the tide on it. But if that doesn't happen, I, you know, when are we going to have another chance? I don't know. Um, I honestly, the, the last administration was very harmful to many of us. And, um, so it's kind of like strike while the iron's hot right now. Randy Robertson, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, same here. Thank you so much, Talia. Up next, we'll talk with the Orlando Queer and Trans Asian Associations, Gabby Montoya and Nika Ramirez, about the Pride of Color event they're hosting this weekend. This is Intersection. I'm Talia Blake, filling in for Matthew Petty. On Saturday, the Orlando Queer and Trans Asian Association will hold a Pride of Color event at Lake Yola from 12 to 6 p.m. I spoke with the organization's executive director, Gabby Montoya, and communications director, Nika Ramirez, about the event and what it means to sit at the intersection of two marginalized communities. Gabby and Nika, thank you so much for joining me today. Why is it important to hold a Pride event specifically for people of color? We... We wanted to create a space just full of queer and trans person of color joy um, and earnest efforts towards community building. Um, like we don't want to be thought of as the other pride, but we want to be known as the pride event that celebrates and uplifts people of color. Uh, it doesn't feel like we have the representation or the support we need as a community, um, and so we're bringing it to ourselves. I, I think going back more on the, the history of pride and how it all started, you know, it was primarily led by not just people of color, but specifically black trans women. And I think it's important that we honor that and in creating our own event, that's something that I really wanted to focus on. People of color who are also LGBTQ face a different set of challenges and experiences because they sit at this intersection of two marginalized communities. What has your experience been like as a queer person of color here in Central Florida? I think specifically as like an organizer so i think there was we've just felt a bit quite a bit of obstacles <laughs> i think i think it's great because a lot of people do um, want to support us and they want to you know help us in our efforts to really create 
this safe space specifically for Asian Americans as Okta, but there's a bit of uh, lack of understanding, I felt, in terms of how to support us properly, not just like financially as well, just going a little bit beyond that, perhaps until the hate crime that occurred in Atlanta, but, but, but a few months ago, I think until uh, we kind of had that tragedy happened and we really start receiving more support in the way that we wanted it. Can you remind our listeners what that incident was in Atlanta? So in Atlanta, Georgia, there was an armed shooter who visited multiple massage parlors. It's it's the belief that he specifically targeted those that were Asian owned or Asian run or had, I guess, Asian workers. And he framed Asian women as being temptresses or as making him um, do sinful things or think of sinful things. So the attack was intended for uh, Asian women who were perceived as sex workers regardless of whether or not they identified that way. And he killed multiple people during this. Speaking of the sex workers, um, a lot of LGBTQ people will go into sex work. Did you feel like the intersection of being a part of that community and also being Asian American really pushed you toward doing something about that tragedy and making your voice heard? Definitely. Well, we had started our efforts um, before that tragedy. In some ways, it was sort of I guess the interest was sort of revived after that. It's, it's sort of amplified in there, but sex work is also a big part of our LGBTQ plus history. Um, so I think when we created the relief fund at first, like I'm just speaking from this because that's kind of where we started making our, our voice heard as an organization throughout Orlando. But yes, in creating that fund, at first we were hesitant because we were like, are we the ones to be speaking about this? First of all, at the time, the oldest board member, I think was like 25 or 26 for a very young board. Um, so we didn't know if we were equipped to handle um, a lot of the uh, emotional distress that we felt a lot of clients would reach out to us when they asked, or well not ask, but when they applied for our, our fund. Um, we had a lot of hesitation, but when you think about it, you know, it's really just about honoring our, our past and making sure that all parts of who we are are, are noticed and, and seen. Last year, the Center for American Progress did a survey of just over 1,500 LGBTQ individuals and found that LGBTQ people of color reported experiencing some form of discrimination at a rate of 12% higher than their white respondents. Um, have you seen that happen here in Central Florida? Of course, I can only uh, speak for like like the experience of like my own experience, but I have heard stories um, from like gay men who are Asian American. It's it's not a secret. You see the tagline like "No fats, femmes, or Asian" on people's profiles because they perceive the entirety of the Asian people as feminine, and so there's like discrimination on that front. Um, but the opposite has also started happening where 
because of different like, cultural booms or different trends, being Asian is now fetishized, and I think a lot of people don't understand that's still racism because you're not, we're not being viewed as the people we are, we're be, being viewed as the people we, quote, represent. I am aware, I can't really go into details, unfortunately, but especially with the start of the pandemic with the, uh, some particular people I know <laughs> that are Asian Americans, they had unfortunately lost their jobs because they, they were coming down with something at the time. It was not COVID-19, just to be specific on that. It was just a general, like, just not feeling very well. And they had lost their jobs in some queer spaces. I mean, it, it wasn't specific as to what the reasoning was behind losing their jobs, but it was just a, a bit of a coincidence that sort of what slowed them down and their jobs was being sick and then they had lost their jobs when the pandemic was it sounds weird to say announced but you know <laughs> we started shutting down <laughs> acknowledged yeah <laughs> in the states specifically acknowledged in the states gabby how do we fix some of these problems um well i'm no i'm no hr expert but um i do believe that like any sort of efforts towards um dei or diversity, or inclusion, or um, those hot words right now. Um, they should be intentional. Uh, you should definitely approach the communities that you want to reach out to um, earnestly and with an open mind, because if you're ascribing their needs to them, if you're telling them what you think they need, it's still not helpful. So personally, um, I guess it would be nice if there was a more personalized statement on application processes that isn't the copy-paste legal what we're required to tell you about diversity. I would like a company-specific approach to what they're doing in their company to make sure that the hiring process won't be harmful to me, um, that I won't come out of it or enter the company feeling uneasy or unsafe and that there's no one I can speak to about this. Um, we're very big on allyship is not a label, but rather a practice. So I think in making a genuine effort to, I guess even just ask the communities that you want to reach out to, like what they want and doing your best to follow through on that. Again, I think it's just the start of fixing those issues. So what do you say to people who might question why a separate event for LGBTQ people of color is needed especially when we, they just had Pride last weekend? Well, first of all, our experiences are not the same as the white LGBTQ plus person. Um, I mean, our experiences between, like, as an Asian American uh, LGBTQ plus person and uh, Latin American, or I guess a Latinx queer person is just not the same. I think it's important in making this event that we acknowledge all parts of ourselves and how our identities intersect and form who we are. That kind of leads so much of how we navigate our queer spaces, our cultural spaces. Over the years there have been efforts to, I guess, make sure we were heard in the quote mainstream LGBTQ spaces um, and therefore the majority white LGBTQ spaces. So we've tried in the past, like, begging for a seat at the table, begging to be heard, and kind of not 
feeling that anymore. Um, so our event was born of a desire to make space for ourselves, um, to think about what we wanted and, and create a space like just for, not just for, but in order to uplift that, any of our needs. Um, so we wanted to create a space for queer and trans people of color to thrive and enjoy themselves, regardless of perhaps corporate or law enforcement presence. Um, so our event isn't really supposed to be a protest or a movement or a retaliation of any sort. We just want a place to be our full selves and connect um, our community to resources we desperately need. Also, a lot of what can happen as like people, as queer people of color specifically, is that um, a lot of our identity and history can be related back to tragedy. Um, so we really, really wanted to focus on making sure we we're creating a celebratory space as well. So that kind of ties into it. Um, I just wanted to touch on community because it's one of those words a lot of people use. Um, they want to build community or want, they want to foster community. And I think a lot of the people who use those words are not necessarily in community with the people they're trying to serve. Um, so like one of the definitions of community is a unified body of individuals. Um, so our partner organizations and us have approached predominantly white LGBTQ spaces in the past with concerns about law enforcement presence, accessibility, and the intention behind their event events. Um, we have waited for them to listen with genuine care and we hope for things to change, but um, the moment this event was created, we decided to stop begging for inclusion in so-called mainstream pride events uh, because they no longer serve the interests of our community or who we um, speak with every day, queer and trans people of color, including our disabled siblings, our black and indigenous siblings, queer and trans people of color, um, including economically and politically disenfranchised siblings, um, sex workers, and, and many more that I haven't been able to name. Um, so we it might be a bold statement, but we don't care to share space with those who imprison us or take advantage of our labor. Our community consists of people who are like us and people who want to live freely. That was OQTAA's Gabby Montoya and Nika Ramirez speaking with me about the importance of the Pride of Color event this Saturday in Orlando. Still to come, Halloween is just over a week away. If you're watching horror movies these days, you might notice there's always one girl who lives. But what happens to those women after the worst night of their lives? Author Grady Hendrix talks about his latest book, The Final Girl Support Group, when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Talia Blake, filling in for Matthew Petty. This Halloween, if you're watching horror movies, you might notice a theme. In many slashers, there's one girl who lives. It's called The Final Girl, and author Grady Hendrix's latest book, The Final Girl Support Group, looks at what happens to those women after the worst night of their lives. Hendrix is hosting a virtual event with the Orange County Library System this Friday. Hendrix spoke with WMFE's Abe Abaraya. I've read uh, The Southern Book Club's Guide to um, oh, Slaying okay. Vampires. I have not read the newest one. I have not read some of the older ones, but it sounds like this is something that you, you obviously have like a very deep love for, for horror and sort of real crime. And I, I'm wondering what sort of drove you into that. Uh, well, you know, that's just kind of, you, you kind of wind up where you wind up in life. Um, I don't really, you know, as a kid, my exposure to horror movies was the same as everyone else, like watching them with my friends. 
But I wasn't a big horror book reader. I actually found the covers too gross to get into them very much. But, um, you know, I, I did the normal. I read Stephen King, I think, starting when I was about 12. And nothing nothing um, that would make you think I was anything but a nice boy on a, on a good upward track to uh, being a productive citizen. Um, and then as I started writing, I just really... Uh, you know, I realized that what people really liked more was the stuff I wrote that leaned into horror more. And so I really embraced it. Uh, but, but, and, you know, I was pretty conversant with horror movies, which I'd always loved. Well, we'll talk a little bit about the, the final girl support group, you know, kind of give us the elevator pitch. Um, that's kind of a weird trope in horror that, that sort of managed to stay up over the years. And, and how do you kind of hope to sort of maybe upend it a little bit in your book? Sure. Well, final girls are just women who survive, right? They're the ones who make it at the end of the horror movie. And I think people, even who aren't horror fans, kind of know that concept. And one of the things that I always found is that I I found them really inspiring. I mean, for a lot of people, especially people like me, they're kind of the reason you watch horror movies. Like, I mean, they're they're the bleak, nihilistic, you know, endings with doom and gloom and everything, like in the dorm that dripped blood or something. But I really love final girls. I love seeing people go through the worst day in their lives and survive somehow. Um, there's, there's to me, nothing more cathartic than the very end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, when the final girl actually barely escapes, but escapes. Um, it's, it's so cathartic. So that's really where my head was. I'm not sure I'm deconstructing that trope. I think a lot of this stuff has always been there. I'm just trying to dig deep on it and really, you know, not treat these women ironically or or as tropes. I'm trying to treat them like people and really ask, so what happens to you as a person if the worst thing ever, you know, all your friends getting murdered in front of you and then you have to kill the killer to survive, if that happens to you when you're 16 or 17 years old, how do you live in the shadow of that for the rest of your life? I, I'm wondering, because there is so much talk about trauma and, and sort of overcoming trauma and how people deal with it. You know, I, I feel like that's something that we as a country talk a lot more about now. And I'm, I'm wondering how much that plays into the book of sort of this idea of I've had this traumatic event happen and, and now I'm going to try and sort of deal with it and, and the consequences of it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not a therapist, right? So I, you know, in actual trauma, like real life people's trauma, I am not qualified to discuss or or treat. But one of the things that's always been part of this genre is this stuff happening to these women. And there's a difference, and then them surviving. And there's a difference between old school and new school final girls. Like the new school sort of final girl, she's more of a Buffy or a Xena or a Furiosa. She shows up ready to rumble. She's She's can hold her own physically. She can go at the drop of a hat. And the final girls I love are from the older movies in the 70s and 80s who aren't even necessarily the smartest kids in their class. They're not necessarily the 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 strongest. They don't have a lot in the way of resources, but they just don't quit. And they keep going. Uh, and they dig deep. And and to me, that's that's how you survive it, right? You just don't quit. You just don't give up. And that, to me, is tremendously useful as a, as a life philosophy. I haven't read the book, obviously, as, as I mentioned, but my understanding of it is it's very recognizable if you've spent any time reading horror or watching horror movies, which, you know, which, which characters we're talking about. 
Um, how did that kind of work from like a legal, you know, perspective and, and sort of how does that sort of tie into the, 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 the show as well? Because I imagine that that crosses a different legal barrier. Well, not really. These these situations are so ingrained in the collective unconscious, even for non-horror fans. I mean, someone who kills every season, whether it's Halloween or Christmas or Valentine's Day, a summer camp killer, a, a killer who lives in dreams, those things have sort of transcended their genres to some extent. Um and so, you know, they're they're out there floating around. And and you know, I obviously changed a lot of things. I mean, these are their own these are my own creations, but you know, the summer camp killer, the dream killer, the Halloween night killer, the prom night killer, these are are tropes that have become really familiar to people. What what about the Christmas killer and and sort of the Christmas scary movie sort of idea, scary story? Like how, how does that sort of factor in? Well, uh, the main character, Lynette, is the survivor of one of these Santa Claus killers. And that was that big trope in the 80s. It started with Silent Night, Deadly Night. There was such a had such a moral panic around it and people protesting theaters with the guy dressed as Santa Claus killing people. Uh, You've got Black Christmas. You've got a, a lot of these movies. And I always I'm a big Christmas fan, so I like writing about Christmas. But I also um there was something sort of always disreputable about these movies, even in the day, there was something really unsavory about them in a way that Friday the 13th wasn't. And I definitely wanted Lynette, my main character to be attached to one of these franchises that had like a bit of a, a stench to it. What I'm wondering is, you know, you, have you ever done something to a character as a writer that sort of haunted you or that, that affected you that you maybe even regretted it? it how do you kind of deal with how you deal with those characters? Yeah, well, I'm not one of those writers who thinks that my characters come to life and speak to me. Um, I think that's just poor planning. But you do spend a remarkable amount of time with these imaginary friends, like talking to them. And so you do develop a lot of feelings about them. Um, there's a sexual assault in Southern Book Club's Glide to Slaying Vampires that I really had a hard time with. And I still... It had to happen, but I wish it hadn't. Um, but but for the nature of the book, there was. Um, there's um, a, a, a dog that comes to a bad end in one of my books that had to happen, but I'll always feel very bad about that. Um, and in Final Girl Support Group, you know, it was really essential to me to get these characters to a better place by the end. I couldn't just let them have some kind of bleak, cynical cop-out ending. I, I needed to get them to a better place or I wouldn't have been comfortable walking away from them at the end. I, I saw an interview with you where you sort of talked about, okay, I, I've turned in this book and now I'm, I'm sort of going through the editing process on it, but I'm going through the research on another book. And I, I'm wondering, how do you sort of structure your, you know, your week, your day, your year when it comes to, you know, getting these different projects out because they're, they're all in different sort of stages? Yeah, I do it poorly. Um, really, <laughs> really, things have really hit me hard this year because I've got a lot of stuff going. And after uh, Southern Book Club's Guide to Same Vampires, we're on this sort of split promotional circuit, part virtual, part in person. And so that's harder than just doing all in person or all virtual. Um, it's the worst of both worlds. So with all virtual, you could do a lot more events because the cost of doing them and the time it took was smaller. 
but you didn't have to leave your your office. With um, live events, you do less of them, but they have a more impact because there's travel time and all that. I just got back from a, a Midwestern tour where I drove something like 1,500 miles um, in a week. Uh, and so um, I'm getting the worst of both of those right now, and it sucks. Um, I'm trying to get my life under uh, a better a schedule. But the thing... I, you know, I love writing books. I really do. It's it's so immersive in a way other things aren't. And it's so nice to just get up every morning, get to your office at eight and just write until six or seven at night and just go away into this book, um, you know, and into this world. And I was very lucky during the pandemic. My office is about three blocks from my house. And uh, there were only about three other people in this entire building, which is like a 16-story midtown office building. So I felt pretty safe. And so it was really nice for me every day during the pandemic. I got up and I got to go right. It was so good for me. Um, that kind of structure and routine is is really um, is is very essential to my mental health. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the Southern Book Club's guy, just because... For me, one of the most legitimately horrifying parts of the book is sort of how the vampire is able to survive because he's affluent, he's a developer, and he kind of preys on children in this, you know, impoverished black community. And that privilege kind of helps shield him from a lot of this. What made you put kind of such a big societal issue at the heart of something that's just a character-driven vampire horror book? Well, I mean, that's the world I see around me. I, I'm, I'm very limited in what I write. I don't write about like fantasy worlds you get to by, you know, going through your bedroom door or, or hobbits with made up languages or other planets and things. I kind of limit myself to what I see around me. Um, and that is what I see, uh, you know, um, and, and you really do see that everywhere um you know someone who is uh insulated from the consequences of their action by their by their money and, and power i uh, i i really I, I think that's something we're all pretty familiar with i mean did you were you able to to look at any sort of similar big societal ills when, when you're looking at the uh, the final girl support group that was there anything like that you were able to sort of tackle well, you know, with Southern Book Club, it was interesting because there was this there was this way that James Harris, it's set in the 90s, and there's a way that James Harris, the main character, mirrors the 90s in some ways, in the sense that the 90s, there was a lot of stuff going on. The roots of what we're living now were laid in the 90s, right? CNN took off in the 90s. Fox News was founded in the 90s. The banks were mostly deregulated in the 90s. Um the first Iraq war, the first attack on the World Trade Center, uh, Walmart went from being, you know, in 36 states to being the world's largest private employer. And even though a lot of stuff was happening in the 90s, there was always this feeling of just hush, just don't rock the boat. Everyone was making so much money that you were encouraged not to say anything, not to not to not to to shake things up at all. And the thing that I encountered with the Final Girl Support Group is I really realize that the story we tell that sort of focuses in, in, in slasher movies of this kind of monstrous male figure or this monstrous killer hunting a woman, 
It's a story we've been telling ourselves for hundreds of years. I mean, all the way back to Little Red Riding Hood and even before, right? A teenager goes into the woods, told not to do something, does it, encounters this monstrous man, uh, the wolf, and, um, and, and, and sort of has to rely on her guile and cunning to survive. And we just keep telling this story. Uh, and sometimes it's a bride, like in Bluebeard. Sometimes it's, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a different version of that story. And sometimes the story is a cautionary tale. Sometimes it's a tale warning women to stay in their place. Sometimes it's the story. It's celebrating female resilience and strength and resourcefulness. It just, the story's meaning changes with us, but it's the same story again and again. And I think you know, we really need to wonder why that story is so essential to us. And and talk a little bit about sort of the place, because a lot of your books sort of have this this you know setting in a in a decade or in a time frame that's very recognizable. And and this book sort of was in the 2010s. It's very recent, but not quite modern. And and what made you sort of pick that time frame? Well, the uh, Final Girl Support Group was going to be contemporary, but then COVID happened. So I had to bump it back pre-COVID because I didn't want to write about COVID. My next book, I'm writing about COVID, but not this one. And um, one of the issues with that is you've got to bump it back far enough that COVID isn't even a part of the story. So if the story, book took place in 2019, it would end and everyone would think, oh, yeah, well, it seems like a happy ending, but they probably all died of COVID the following year. So I had to put it back in 2010 um, just to get it far enough back where 2020 would have nothing to do with the story. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that that you wanted to kind of touch on that, that you know, sort of stands out for you with this book? Um. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it's funny. Slasher movies have such a bad reputation. I mean, they really do. If you say you like slashers, people think you're essentially saying you like watching porn. Um, they're considered very misogynistic, very violent. And and I had the same stereotype. Growing up, I was more of a zombie guy than a slasher guy. And watching so many slashers to write this book, I realized that there are plenty of cheap, lousy slashers out there. But there are some that just they really get at something primal and almost fairy tale-ish. Um, and so many of them focus on women surviving horrible circumstances. And it's interesting, even a movie that I had always sort of dismissed like Slumber Party Massacre, which, I mean, it just, it just the title alone sounds terrible, but it was actually one of three movies that Roger Corman produced that were all written and directed by women. And in fact, Slumber Party Massacre is written by Rita Mae Brown, the famous feminist author. And it's a really fun, really great movie that defies expectations. And I feel like people really bring a lot of expectations to the genre. They think it's just going to be, oh, it's going to be about killing women. And there's so much more to it than that. And and I hope that those preconceptions don't keep people from, you know, watching Nightmare on Elm Street 3, watching Friday the 13th Part 2 um, or, or Slumber Party Massacre, because there's so much good stuff there. I mean, this... This is a story we've been telling for hundreds of years, and this just happens to be its latest incarnation. You know, we're, we're sort of right in this Halloween season right now. Um, if you have recommendations for people about what to watch, what to read sort of right before uh, things get really crazy, what, 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 what would you recommend? 
Sure. Well, you can't go wrong with Slumber Party Massacre. It is still a slumber a movie called Slumber Party Massacre, so have a beer or six. It helps. But it really is fun. And the characters in it really do act like real human beings, not just um, knife fodder. I was also, I always, 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 this time of year is around the time of year I reread Shirley Jackson's We've Always Lived in the Castle, which is such a great book uh, and always feels like autumn to me. Uh, But also on top of that, Stephen Graham Jones has a new book called My Heart is a Chainsaw, which is also a final girl book that's really terrific. Uh, Oyinkin Braithwaite wrote a book called My Sister, the Serial Killer, which is a very short, sharp, funny serial killer book, if a serial killer book can be funny. Sarah Langan's Good Neighbors has such great teenage characters. Um, And, you know, there's always, this is a time of year I really like big, fat, immersive books you can kind of lose yourself in. And there's a book from 1981 I helped get reissued called uh, The Tribe by Barry Wood, which is really a giant New York novel that's probably the best American work of Jewish horror fiction ever written. Um, and you can find that from Valancourt. But it's a if, if this is the time of year you want to get lost in a big, fat, epic book, The Tribe by Barry Wood is definitely one you should check out. Well, We've been speaking with Grady Hendricks. He's an author. You live in uh, Manhattan, but yeah, you, in New York, in New York. And um, talk, you know, your your event on Friday at the the library again. Uh, tell us a little bit about that before we go. Sure. Well, author events make everyone want to kill themselves, uh, whether it's the <laughs> audience or the author. They're just have a bad reputation. It's a worse reputation than slasher movies. And years ago, I just decided there's got to be a way to do better. So I started doing these one-man shows instead of doing a typical event. So on Friday night, it's going to be virtual, but I'll be giving a one-hour history of horror, uh, of murder books and murder movies that goes from everything from hairy murder dwarves with double rows of teeth to primal hamster trauma to Jack the Ripper. Um, And it goes about an hour. There are about 134 slides, so it moves pretty fast. And there are even horrible songs. I highly suggest you drink before or during the show. It will make my singing exponentially better. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to save the author event from its sordid reputation. That was author Grady Hendricks speaking with WMFE's Abe Abaraya. Hendricks' latest book is The Final Girl Support Group, which HBO is developing as a series. Hendricks is doing a virtual event with the Orange County Library System this Friday at 9 p.m. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Abe Abaraya. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen back to archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Talia Blake. Thanks for listening.